If I had to recommend one book on God's vision for the city to you, it would be Ray Bakke's A Theology Big Enough for the City. Uh, for nearly 50 years, Dr. Bakke challenged and equipped evangelicals to love and serve their city. And he loved to talk about the history of the church. And one lecture on the history of Protestantism in America. And by the way, the Knoxville Leadership Foundation has a library of his lectures. And if you'd like to study more on this, we can get them to you. He was talking about the great split that took place in the American church, the Protestant church in the middle of the 19th century. It's pretty complicated, but uh, basically uh, one group went more towards the conservative side, one went towards the progressive side. And what Dr. Bakke said was that the conservative branch of the church went inward and the progressive branch of the church went outward. In other words, the, uh, the traditional believers focused on their inner life while more progressive believers focused on active service in the world. And his point was that we still have that kind of... Uh, uh, distinction in the church today. Well, what we're trying to do in this series on, on public discipleship is, is we're saying that an authentic disciple, it's a both and, that they do cultivate a rich inner life, but that rich inner life overflows in a life of service in the world. Well, in the last sermon, we looked at Jesus' inaugural sermon in the synagogue at Nazareth. Remember, he says he comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And this week, we want to continue reading and look at what happens after he speaks. And as we do, we're going to learn another important principle about public discipleship. Uh, let's review real briefly here. Jesus starts, he reads, he takes the Isaiah scroll and he reads from uh, Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So a Messiah is speaking in this portion of Isaiah. The Messiah says, I'm going to come and I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor. And then there are three infinitive clauses that describe what the saving mission of the Messiah will look like. He will proclaim liberty to captives. He's going to free souls from the bondage of sin. He's going to care about prisoners in literal jail cells. He'll set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the Greek word for oppressed means to be shattered, broken into pieces, crushed, bruised, or broken by tragedy. So Jesus comes to heal all the effects of sin on our souls, minds, and bodies. The last infinitive, the Messiah will come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that refers to the year of Jubilee found in Leviticus 25, where Moses said that every 70 years Israel was to forgive debts so that the poor could start over again. And later writers used the year of Jubilee as a kind of shorthand for God's saving work. He frees us from the debt of sin and rescues us from poverty. So this is Jesus' mission statement. 
He comes to preach good news to the poor. And one of the things that Christians ask a lot, well, does he mean literal poor or spiritual poor? And Jesus would not have thought of people in these categories because he, he never divided people into spiritual and physical buckets. Uh, Hebrew people saw the world holistically. God created everything, so everything had the capacity to be redeemed. And so Jesus comes for the whole person. He comes for the soul. He comes for the body. He wouldn't have pulled them apart. Uh, redemption, salvation includes every part of our lives, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental. So he stands up, he reads it, and then he says this 700-year-old prophecy. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what I want to focus on tonight is the response, which is really intriguing. Um, initially, they're pretty positive and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? See, Jesus grew up in this synagogue. But the crowd soon begins to turn on Jesus. Apparently, they have heard that Miracles have been done in nearby Capernaum and they seem to be a little bit jealous and they want him to show off a little bit for the home crowd. And Jesus can sense that the crowd's turning and he says, truly, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. And the crowd starts to get angry. And Jesus follows up with two very familiar stories from the Hebrew Bible that everyone in the synagogue would have known about two famous prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And when he tells these simple stories, the audience is so enraged that they take Jesus out to the hill on the edge of Nazareth. And I've, uh, I've, I've been there and it overlooks a valley where vast stories of redemptive history took place. And they try to push him off. What, what is going on? I mean, why would they be so upset? What has he done? Well, the first story is about the prophet Elijah. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came across the land and... Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. I think we have a map, if we could go to that just for a second. Um, it's a little hard to see from where you are, but north, where it says Phoenicia, at the very top of the screen, there was a coastal city named Zarephath. And the main thing I want you to see from that map is that this is not a part of Israel. This is a different ethnic group. It's not a part of Israel. We find this story in 1 Kings 17. There's a famine in Israel. Elijah, like everyone else, is hungry. God sends Elijah beyond the boundaries of Israel to a widow. And this widow is from a different ethnic group. And the widow feeds Elijah out of her dwindling food supply and Elijah in return miraculously provides food for her for the remainder of the famine. So what's going on in the story? A lot of things. One thing is 
God sends a messenger across cultural barriers to bless a widow from a different ethnic group. Now, the second story is about the prophet Elijah. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. If we can have the map back, you can see where Syria is up their way in the north. And again, the main point here is that the person who's healed in this story is not a Jew. It's a, it's a military officer from a different ethnic group and actually a, a group of people that were at war with Israel that, you know, were, were not friendly. We can find this story in 2 Kings 5. Naaman has a disease called leprosy. His servant girl has heard of a Hebrew prophet named Elisha who has a healing ministry. She says, you need to go see the prophet. Naaman reluctantly travels south to meet him. And the prophet says, wash seven times in the Jordan, which was kind of humbling. If you've ever seen pictures or gotten to go to Israel, the Jordan's actually really gross. <laughs> it's very narrow and very muddy. And he says, basically, look, the rivers are prettier in Syria. Can I wash there? And the prophet says, no. And he obeys and is healed. Now, what's the point of this little story? Hebrew prophets normally ministered within Israel. And so this is another story where God's prophet crosses over cultural barriers to bless a man from another ethnic group. Now, for those of you that are public speakers and sometimes you have bad days, you probably will never experience this, so take heart. Uh, here's the crowd's response. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down off the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. Now, why do these two stories about crossing cultural boundaries to bless people of other ethnic groups so infuriate the men in the synagogue that Saturday morning? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to think a little bit about how Israel thought about different ethnic groups in this period. Um, there was a lot of ethnic diversity in the New Testament. Jewish people thought of the world in terms of Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews, but there were many different ethnic groups among the non-Jews. Acts 2 lists all of those different people present at Pentecost. So those are people, those are all different ethnic groups, different cultures, different languages. Uh, there was a black African nation located along the Nile, just south of Egypt. Earlier in the Bible, it's called the Kingdom of Cush, later Ethiopians. Black people were spread all over the Mediterranean world when the Christian era dawned. Other ethnic groups from North Africa spread across the empire. They're often called Libyans. And then there were thousands of different ethnic groups all across the Roman Empire. And they wound up in cities for three reasons. Merchants brought goods from all over the world, and sometimes they would stay in a new city. Roman soldiers would be sent out to serve, 
And then when they retire, they would stay in the city. And then many slaves were sold and sent throughout the empire. And also Jewish people had been scattered throughout the empire. And so the urban centers of the Roman Empire had great ethnic diversity. And even within Judaism, there were different ethnic groups. The Samaritans, for example, were descendants of Jews and non-Jews. And a lot of tension developed between them. Well, how, how was Israel supposed to relate to the different ethnic groups or people groups of the world? Well, we find the answer in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, a verse we've gone back to many times. Abraham is the father of Israel. Here's God's call to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is God's plan for healing a world divided by sin. He calls a people to himself and he calls that people to bless every ethnic group on earth. Now, Israel has gradually forgotten this mission over the centuries and decided to narrow the mission to focus exclusively on themselves. They leaned heavily on the expectation that the Messiah would save them, but they did not pay much attention to all the signs in the Old Testament that God would restore all peoples, even their enemies. And after years of being persecuted, the people of Israel were not inclined to love the many different ethnic groups surrounding them. Jesus comes to bring blessing to every ethnic group. And Elijah and Elisha actively pursue this mission, crossing cultural barriers in order to bless the widow and the soldier. And we'll see Jesus do this himself many times. Uh, I think we have a slide of Samaria there. In John 4, um, Samaria is right in the middle of, uh, of Israel. And uh, normally, because the Samaritans were so hated, most Jewish people would go around and then up north into Galilee. Jesus goes actually straight through Samaria and has an encounter with the woman at the well who becomes the first apostle to the, to the people of Samaria. Um, and then Jesus tells us to do the same. Um, in the Great Commission, uh, um, I think there's a, maybe the next slide there, Robert. Um, he commissions his disciples to bless all ethnic groups. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then in the book of Acts, he restates the mission, but you will receive power with the Holy Spirit when it's come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now we're ready to state another principle of public discipleship that goes like this. Disciples cross cultural barriers to share God's blessing with people from other ethnic groups. 
Disciples cross cultural barriers to share God's blessing with people from other ethnic groups. Now tonight, I'm using the term ethnic instead of the term race for two reasons. Um, First, when the New Testament talks about blessing other groups with the gospel, it uses the Greek word ethna, from which we get the word ethnic. And an ethnic group is a group of people who have a shared culture and ancestry, language, and tradition. So that's that's, uh, the biblical word for it. And second, the biblical writers would not have understood our categories of race. Uh, As you probably know, the idea of race, as we currently use it, developed in the early modern period as a way to place one group of people over another group. And the intellectual history of how our modern ideas about race developed is complicated. We won't go into it tonight, but... Suffice it to say that the way that we think about race today is a relatively new idea. And so what I'm trying to do tonight is stay as close as possible to the thought world of the New Testament. And then hopefully by doing this careful biblical work, it will help us talk about racial conciliation and justice today because those are very important conversations. So now let's ask that question, what does faithful discipleship look like if this is something that Jesus cares about what does it look like for us to follow that example well first of all we need to cross cultural boundaries in order to share the gospel with every ethnic group on earth the verses that we've looked at tonight are the foundation of the modern mission movement and most sermons on this subject Uh, kind of end here the application is global evangelism and they certainly do call us to global evangelism as Nate prayed but let's remember how Jesus himself described sharing the good news in his inaugural sermon he offers a broad and expansive vision of sharing the gospel he has come to save us from the captivity and blindness and debt of sin And he's also come for the literal literal poor, real prisoners, to care for people who really need to be healed physically and who are under the burden of real financial debt. And indeed, the two illustrations Jesus gives in the synagogue to the puzzled crowd are about feeding a widow and healing a leper. So faithful disciples cross cultural boundaries to bless people from other ethnic groups, meeting both physical and spiritual needs. Now, I want to end tonight by considering three reasons why following Jesus in this way is difficult in our city. First, our city is designed in a way that limits interaction with other ethnic groups, especially the black community in East Knoxville. Um, Our interstate system Uh, has been designed in a way that divided neighborhoods and made it easier for those who could afford to live and work away from those poor neighbors to pretty much live a life without any interaction with vulnerable people. And that means much of our poverty is concentrated in neighborhoods, and if we could see the food desert slide, um, that are geographically cut off from the rest of the city. Uh, Most of the food deserts 
in our community or right around our church, right around our neighborhood. Um, poverty rates in East Knoxville are over 40%, particularly among the black community. The U.S. average is uh, 13%. The schools in this part of town are struggling. The average ACT score for Austin East in 2016 to 2017 was 16, while the average score at Farragut was 24.4. Dr. Amin at the University of Tennessee, I believe she's now moved to West Virginia University, wrote her dissertation on how um, uh, black people in our city experience the city. And here's it's the whole dissertation is fascinating. She also founded The Bottom uh, over in East Knoxville. Uh, here's just one quote. Within the last five years, Knoxville has appeared on a number of lists of desirable places to live in America. The revitalization of downtown has ushered in not just little shops and outdoor cafes, but breweries at every turn. Boy, that's for sure. Progressives, bike riders, and festival goers all are being targeted as revitalization project after project makes its way from downtown throughout neighborhoods and center city. And on the surface, the revitalization and rebranding of Knoxville is a great thing for the city, yet not all Knoxvillians are as hopeful of these changes or feel secured in their place in the city on the brink of change. There is a population of Knoxvillians for whom these types of changes have historically come at a cost. African-Americans. Blacks and whites develop different place perceptions of senses of place associated with Knoxville. So just uh, just a a little illustration. Um, Two weeks ago, I I joined Daryl in a funeral for a, a, a freshman at Austin East who'd committed suicide. Um, I went there and I was told that uh, two other children killed themselves during fall break. Uh, I've not been able to confirm that, but I was told it three times at the funeral. Uh, That Saturday, I went to Kroger's and I I met a mom I knew from our swim team and a daughter who was best friends with the young woman who was killed or killed herself. And the daughter pulled out her phone. Uh, The the young lady um, sent a group text to her best friends saying she was about to shoot herself. And uh, that's how this little one found out. Um, Then, Monday, uh, a a young, I believe he was also, I think he was 17, was shot. Then on Thursday, I was supposed to meet with a pastor who's a friend of mine, and I I said, why can't you make it? And he said, because I'm at a funeral. Turned out to be at the funeral of the brother of the young man who was shot on Monday. So that family lost two in, uh, in one week. And the only reason I bring that up is just to say, it wouldn't surprise me if you didn't know that. Uh, there finally was an article in the New Sentinel, but for about two weeks I looked everywhere I could and could find nothing about it. I don't think there's a conspiracy about it, but our worlds are so disconnected. And the, the mother in the, in the Kroger's, uh, she, she works at the school with a little girl. And she said, we're so focused on the kids that are, you know, visibly in trouble that we miss the quiet ones. And then she just kind of 
said, I don't know what we're going to do. I just feel totally overwhelmed. And again, the only reason I share that story is, is if what Jesus is saying is true here, then the disciples in our community, the followers of Christ in our community, we should have some level of care and compassion for the, the weaker neighbors in our community. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm not trying to say, you know, go move down there necessarily. But, but I, I'm uncomfortable with a vision of following Christ that says, come to Jesus and get your best life now. I actually think you will get your best life now if you follow Jesus. But Jesus is not really a life coach. He, he, he comes, and a major part of the reason why he's here is to take the gospel to other ethnic groups. And so that's why I think this vision of discipleship is, is so challenging. It's just so easy to stay in our own world in, uh, in Knoxville, if, if you live out west, at least. That's where I live. It's just very, very easy to do. Again, no guilt trip, not trying to shame anybody, but it's part of our reality. And I get frustrated sometimes when I, when I, when I hear about people kind of, you know, maybe out west arguing about something, and I think... We've kind of got a whole community burning over here. <laughs> you know, Could we just kind of talk for a minute? Could we at least pray about that? <laughs> I, I remember uh, uh, years ago, we just built a new addition out west in a church that I was pastoring and a black pastor friend, I was kind of proudly showing him through it. And he said, he shook his head. He says, you guys spent all your money on yourself. The second barrier to... Um, sharing the gospel, the whole gospel cross-culturally is the homogeneous unit principle. Uh, you, you may have never heard of that, but you've all experienced it. Um, the homogeneous unit principle was identified by Dr. Donald McGavern, the founder of the School of World Mission at Fuller Seminary. And uh, I think we have a little picture of him there, yeah. And the principle states that people come to Christ more easily if you do not ask them to cross cultural barriers. That makes sense. And so this led missionaries to plant churches in one particular ethnic group and not try to blend them. And so I was in Vietnam once to work with some orphans and on the bus tour, we we're going through the jungle and the tour guide just said, do you know there's 52 different ethnic groups in this jungle? People with different languages, cultures, traditions. And so the idea is rather than trying to create one church for all of them, you go into each different ethnic group and, and start a church because people naturally come to Christ easier that way. And they do. And, and, and so this was all well intended. Uh, the homogeneous unit principle became an influential strategy for American church planters. My senior year in seminary, I took a, a whole semester studying this in a class on church growth. And we were taught to plant churches with people who are similar to us because doing so will facilitate church growth. And, you know, if you notice, new churches have typically been led by pastors whose culture, class, and skin color closely match those of their flocks. And by and large, this does work. Uh, and so there's, like many things, it's complicated. 
So much to praise God for. It helps people come to Christ. But it hinders us from following the example of Jesus who crossed cultural barriers to share the gospel. I think I'd go so far to say is if my entire Christian life is with people who are exactly like me uh, in terms of my giving, my prayers, my time, my worship, um, I, I think I've missed something. Again, not trying to shame you, but I am trying to say that this, this cross-cultural arc, this press towards moving towards people who have needs from other cultures and ethnic groups, it's a fundamental part of the gospel, and so it should be a fundamental part of our discipleship. Last reason we have trouble following Christ this way is that we misunderstand what Jesus came to do. Uh, my good friend, Pastor Kevin Du Bois, is the director of community ministries in Lonsdale for the Emerald Youth Foundation. And I just love the way he reads scripture. We've been reading this passage together for a while. And we were talking about what really upset the people in the synagogue that morning. And Kevin said, I think it was their perception of Jesus. They misunderstood who he was and what he came to do. They thought the Messiah was only coming for them. Their expectations were rooted in their own self-interest. And when he didn't meet their expectations, they became angry. And so one of the reasons I think disciples don't cross cultural barriers to share God's blessing is because we misunderstand what Jesus came to do. We think Jesus is primarily concerned with our inner spiritual life and moral purity or making our lives better. And of course, that's all true. God cares deeply about our inner spiritual life and moral purity. He does want our lives to be better. But he also wants us to cross cultural barriers and bless people with the gospel. The most common spiritual problem I've talked with people about in my entire ministry has had to do with sexual sin and sexual shame. By far. And I've had hundreds of these conversations. And they are important because uh, sexual purity is important for a disciple. But I have rarely had a discussion that goes something like this. Pastor Doug, I'm just really concerned for my soul. I just lack any concern for the poor. I wonder what's wrong with me spiritually. I just don't seem to care much for the vulnerable neighbors around me. I don't know if I've ever had that conversation. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, the first sermon, I gave you some ideas about different ways you could start caring for the vulnerable members of our neighborhood. Last sermon, we talked about supporting a nonprofit. Maybe you just personally can't, and one of the things we can do is support a nonprofit that is. Prayer is certainly a part of it. Tonight, I just, I just want to leave you with this uh, challenge or request, and that's just spend some time with Jesus and ask him, do I understand who you are and what you've come to do? Just that, just that much. Do I understand who you are and what you've come to do? And if I don't, 
change my thinking so that I can follow you. Let's pray. Lord, more than anything, may we just spend some time with you this week. We do want to follow you. We do want our lives to look like yours. We want to care about the things you care about. But we're also busy and broken and tired and anxious. And in that way, we all are poor. So somehow in the midst of our own needs and just the struggle sometimes it is to get through the week, have a conversation with us as individuals and as a church about what does it look like to follow you in this way? In your name, amen.